Don't worry about a thing. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. Don't worry about a thing. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. If you got a tummy ache, or you don't feel right, or if you have a nasty rash keeping you up at night, don't worry, don't worry about a thing. Don't worry. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from the unceded Aboriginal land of the Kulin Nation. Tonight we'll focus deeper on the Karam Karam Swamp, an ancient and dynamic ecosystem, remnants of which are protected across the Edithvale and Seaford wetlands. There is archaeological evidence of Aboriginal occupation, settlement and agriculture in the wetlands 2,000 years prior to colonisation. This was the moment in geological time when the sea levels fell and the ancient swamp was formed. However, while water levels were higher, about 7,000 years ago, Bunurong peoples paddled on wooden canoes through the shallow tidal estuary collecting mollusks. We acknowledge their ongoing connection to lands, water and sky. Tonight's guest on Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash is Jan van Skyk. Jan is an artist, architect, based in Melbourne. He is the director of MVS Architects and a creative practice researcher and senior lecturer at RMIT Architecture and Urban Design. The founder of And Concepts, creator of Lost Tablets, and a creative sector activist at Future Tense. MVS Architects were the architects of the award-winning Edithvale Seaford Wetlands Education Centre, a project which we shall hone in on later in this conversation. Welcome, Jan. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. It's uh, very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting and having me. It's, it's a pleasure. You come from a very creative family. And I, I was wondering, did you have other career options or was architecture something you always knew? I was not given a choice. <laughs> um, and they say that um, arranged marriages are often the ones that work out best. It's people finding themselves in a situation which they have no choice but to make the best of. It's the perfect example of, um, of uh, fatalism changing to determinism through um, the actions of the individual. So I found myself in it through no decision that I had made one way to look at it was that it was an accident or that it was I was um, the implication of it was told to me. Um, but finding myself in it, I then became very uh, interested and excited and engaged with it. 
So it's a path that I realised I was on after I was on it. It's not uncommon, I think, for some that sometimes their parents push them in. They don't want them to be a poor artist, but you're from a very strong creative family. And so then what was your earliest memory of a building or place? So I have a story about that. When I was in my 20s, I was reading a novel fiction called Zaire. It's about some spies in Africa. And in the novel, uh, there was a character that had a very interesting name, which in my ignorance, I didn't realise was an actual person. And listeners will recognise his name in a way that I didn't then. The name was Haile Selassie. It stuck in my mind. It got peaked again when a song was playing on the radio around about the same time. It was a rap song and there was a sample in the song which was repeated over and over again. And in the sample, there was someone making a hotel booking for someone called Haile Selassie. And my brain went, hang on a minute, what's that about? Why is the name of the book and the name of the song, which are two unrelated things, why are they the same? But having the natural curiosity of a um, very busy um, tweening-year-old, I didn't give it another thought at all. Then one day at Sunday lunch, I was um, struggling to find something to say to my parents to whom I had not, with whom I had not yet worked how to communicate. And that this snippet of curiosity popped into my mind and I said to my father, who um, is uh, very well read, I said, oh, hey, Dad, what's a highly Selassie? And he said, well, it's funny you should ask. Explained what listeners probably already know that Haile Selassie was the emperor of Ethiopia and uh, the nominal uh, founder of the Rasta movement. And he was exiled in the United Kingdom where he was put up in the holiday home of an English newspaper editor in Cornwall. We're getting to the landscape and the building now. And in this home that he was put up, uh, he lived for a long time in one uh, one of the rooms in the home. And uh, long after he moved out, the newspaper editor sold it and it was purchased by uh, a young English painter who later became very f- a famous painter in the St Ives School of Painting, a painter called Patrick Heron. Patrick Heron painted and lived in this house for his entire career and he had two daughters and one of them studied architecture, the AA, with my father and they formed an architecture, pra- architecture practice together and um, my mother and my father... Um, and Kate, um, who was he was in practice with, who was Patrick Heron's daughter, used to go on holiday regularly to this amazing house um, that Patrick lived in. And the house is this sandstone, I'm uh, oh, sorry, granite house amongst these giant granite boulders. And his paintings were these very abstract paintings. But he would talk about them how they were part. Uh, they were they were paintings of the landscape that he was in. He was painting the feeling of the landscape coming up through his feet is what Patrick used to say about his very abstract, colourful, flat uh, paintings and prints. And this came back to an experience and a memory for me because in the story that my father was explaining to me who Haile Selassie was, he then explained that in this house was a room called the Emperor's Room, uh, which is the room that Haile Selassie lived in, and that's the room in which I was conceived. And I only find out this thing because I asked a stupid question but I've been going back to that house um, for my uh, for, the, for my whole life. It's still there, and it's um, it's now a museum to Patrick Heron's life, and it's looked after by his two daughters. And I visit it whenever I go to the UK, and I visit that landscape. And so that that landscape is a very a bouldery, dynamic landscape, and that um, has tied into my appreciation of 
spatial things and also the abstract and emotional understanding of things which seem um, spatial in a very dynamic physical way but are also um, very meaningful in an emotional way. And Patrick's works are then uh, key um, parts of my own art collection which came out and began um, with a print that Patrick gave me of that landscape which was waiting for me when I got home from being born so this this landscape is tied into my life in ways that I then, much like my trajectory in the career of architecture, I only found out the significance and the journey of it well after the fact. I love that story so much. It speaks to these inextricable, interconnected threads that tie us all together. It's a theme that we come to in moments on the show. And the dynamism of the landscape is another image that has struck me and also sits with me when I think about the Edith Vale Seaford Wetlands Education Centre that your office, MVS Architects, did back in 2011. It was opened and decorated in the awards in 2012. And I, I drive past this building every day, live in Edith Vale quite often, go up Edith Vale Road, and I notice how now it's engulfed by the landscape. The grasses have grown, the wetland has grown Sometimes it rains lately, the last few months, and the precast soaks in the water. It runs off, it turns such a dark colour, the impressions become deeper. That cheeky orange that I'll ask you about later in the show says hello and a peekaboo from the side. And I always look at the reliefs and impressions and some moments it looks like wind, some moments it looks like water to me, some moments it looks like reflections. Um, so I want to touch on this project and it is the, the theme we've let listeners know that we are going to discuss tonight because I'm really interested in these notable buildings that we have in our local area that sometimes maybe people get used to and learn to live with and forget that they have been highly awarded for public architecture, are important and sit on such a rare dynamic ecosystem. So... My first question about this project is when your work began with it. First, MVS Architects did a master plan for the Edithal Wetlands, is that right? Yeah, there was, um, I mean, the the wetlands, the Ramsar-listed wetlands, which are of international um, uh, significance and quality and are a very important part of the migratory patterns of um, a whole lot of birds around the globe, um, is, um, is cared for by... Um, a number of people. Its nominal um, uh, proprietor owner is um, is Melbourne Water, um, but then there are a whole series of volunteers that look after it. So there's a whole community of care around it. The friends of Edithville Seaford Wetlands, exactly. The folks at the Bird Hide. It's it's busy. It is popular. That is for sure. So the the, the, the money to pay to build the project uh, was channeled th- uh, through. Um, from Melbourne Water, but um, those that were actually the client is a much larger group, and so we had to engage with um, with uh, a complex uh, group of people with um, different um, types of care and levels of interest and frequency of visiting. And so th- through that um, is how we actually began to, to really learn about um, what this uh, wetlands meant to itself and to birds and to its history and what it meant to... Uh, to what it used to be before it became in the state that it currently is, and I might talk a bit more about its change over time later. But the master plan, um, a master plan is not 
simply a drawing of something which then gets rolled out. A master plan is is part of it's one of the last parts, but it's part of the political process of um, groups of people deciding what it is that they want to do with something and. It's because of that reason that master plans always change from how they're drawn to how they're made manifest because they are part of the decision-making process. They're a group decision-making process. They're made public. And if you look at the original sketches in the master plan that our office did, um, there are certain things that you'll recognise in that um, if you look at what's there now, but there's quite a lot that's different as well. And so that master plan was this live um, discursive tool that was part of that um, critical, um, it's called engagement, um, and that's a term that's used for that very frequently, but I try to talk about it in a different way because that has become a tag, um, and usually engagement often means where an organisation or a political um body tells those what about what they're getting but this is actually engagement is actually a learning process yeah it's a working document yeah yeah it's not a beat down of the stakeholder it's it's a, a process of collaboration and learning and often um often and when we're going a bit off topic here but that's okay i suppose um often one of the things that happens through the engagement process is that um, rather than trying to get everyone to agree before you proceed, the art of engagement is working out how to help a group of people realise that often it's important to proceed even if there isn't complete agreement and to be able to be comfortable and happy with the process that's taken place to allow that to um, to go to the next step, even though agreement might not have been um, reached across the board. That's generally important for all public life, I feel. <laughs> Absolutely. For, for all process in, in that sense. So what are some of the big ideas that were imprinted into this master plan and how some of them lived on? Because, listeners, we've talked about this before, that architecture is about ideas. Well, the main, um, the main idea behind this building is, um, that is its location. It is located in the wetlands, and so it's uh, it's an interpretive centre, which means a building where you go to um, to learn about the subject matter that the building is um, is about. And the subject matter of this building is the uh, the wetlands, the flora and fauna, and history and future of the wetlands. And so the idea of the building is that once you're inside, there's a whole lot of information provided to you. And the uh, the architectural idea for the building is to Im- was to Im- Im- put the building in the wetlands, and so that um, part of the way that you are learning about the wetlands when you're visiting the building is through an immersion in the environment that you're actually in, rather than reading simply a series of panels and then looking out or later visiting something. You're actually in it. It becomes it's a bird uh, hide. It's a bird. It's a bird hide. It's a bird hide. Yet. The idea of it being hidden, as we'll get to in a minute, I'm sure, was changed. It's not a very hidden building. Anyone who's seen it will, will know that it's not very hidden. Say more. And that was part of the other idea about it as well. So there's often this idea in um, in architecture, uh, it's a very popular idea that um, the buildings should um, look natural and look sustainable and that will make them better. And we we took a different approach. Um, we were interested in, in the idea that the concept of nature is something that human beings invented to separate themselves from it. We think 
that human beings are a part of nature. The separation of humans on the one hand and nature on the other is what allows us culturally for hundreds of years to just borrow from the environment and not return uh, to it. And so we saw the building as um, a thing that would allow visitors to be immersed in the wetlands but also to express the whole mechanism of viewing to be a device, a visible device, which um, explained and showed not only the wetlands, but the, how the act of looking at the wetlands was a thing in and of itself, much like the idea that when a scientist conducts an experiment, you can't do so without affecting the experiment. Your, your place in looking at something is part of the thing that you're looking at, and this building seeks to express that. That observation, the visitor's gaze, is in many ways, the idea. And that's what the purpose of a bird hide is, isn't it? You come in with your binoculars, you sit and you look out onto it. But here also in, in a bird hide, bird, bird hides uh, are, uh, and Paul Carter writes about this in his um, very eloquent uh, review of the project for um, Architecture Australia. Uh, bird hides are usually um, imagined to be things that are not visible. They're blended into the environment. Um which is odd, like the the blending of something into the environment is something that serves humans. Birds aren't making aesthetic decisions about whether something looks right or not. That's, that's That change is made for the humans. And so this building, the Edithville Seaford Wetlands Discovery Centre, expresses the act of observing as well as being a mechanism for observing. So why do they move the position of it? Why did they move the position of it? Yeah, you mentioned that the position changed. It was oh, <clears throat> uh, from the master plan to where it currently is. Well, it, it actually remained roughly where it is. It's just that the um, the landscape design changed such that the wetlands then came around the building. So, in the original master plan, the building is on a bit of fairly solid ground, and it sort of touches the edge of the wet part of the wetlands, which is an, an odd thing to think of because wetlands don't have very defined edges. Yet in the master plan you can see a line and it's blue on one side and green on the other. Um, and in that in that line in the master plan, the building is like perched on the edge, whereas um, the, where it's currently located, um, if, the, if, the, if the rain has been happening in a certain pattern, the building can be completely um, standing in water. And the only way to get to it is through the uh, elevated ramp. And so you feel like you're walking out into the wetlands when you're going into it. And so that, that change was um, it was a really conscious decision to, to place the building as one of the things in the wetlands. So th- these, the, the wetlands um, that are there now, um, compared to the enormous and great wetlands that were there pre-settlement, this is a, a very small sliver remaining... They went from Morty Alec to Frankston, for, for listeners. It's Just visualise that on your Google Maps, from Morty Alec to Frankston. Huge. Yeah, that's that's a long drive. It's a long drive. <laughs> it's a long bike ride. It's a beautiful bike ride, but it's a long area. And so the the, the, the sliver that's there now, has um, it has suburban dwellings like all around it. And rather than ignore this, what... Um, I would describe as a really beautiful juxtaposition between how humans live and um, the wetlands that are um, preserved and protected under the Ramsar listing. 
um, we thought that was a really amazing condition to actually um, make a piece of architecture about. So the building, in some moments, has the um, has the image of, a, of the shape of, a, of a, the roof of a, of a suburban house, for example. It's, it doesn't shy away from the fact that it is a building, and it is related to the other buildings that are around it because they're part of the same family of things. As I snuck around the building, or as much of that isn't fenced off. It, for me, it was dancing between being something that was washed up in a flood, more organic, and then very suburban. And the first thing that hits you as you come in is these feature water tanks straight through the glass doors that you can see beyond. Can you tell us a bit about those? Sorry, what, what, what water tanks? I, I like to pretend that they're not there because they have a sort of slightly um, sort of odd, they seem kind of slightly out of place, which is part of the the designed um, a change that you experience as you enter the building. You, um, you enter in and you see this kind of pile of blocks which are brightly coloured and then you walk past them and round into the building and then the wetlands starts to reveal itself to you through the windows. Um, the building has um, a remarkable amount of sustainability um, uh, techniques in it. It, um, it performs at a very, very high level. It, even now, many years after it was built, it still, uh, it still performs at a very high level. And the, the measures of what that is are, are constantly increasing. Um, one, of the, one of the mechanisms that um, is in the building is obviously the uh, recycling of water, which those tanks play a part of. But also they uh, play a role as the thermal mass of the building. So they store and stabilise one of the things that stabilise the internal temperature of the building. So it's, if the building is cooling down, it's slow to cool down. And if it warms up, it's slow to warm up. This is a principle of passive uh, sustainable design called thermal mass. And they, they play a role in that. So they're there, they're there as part of the experience of the building. They help um, recycle the rainwater and they also stabilise the temperature of the building, reducing the uh, energy uh, costs and expenditure of carbon to keep it going such that it is necessary shouldn't be any at all if the building's performing properly. All a good and important service and I also found them whimsical <laughs> on the visit. <laughs> it does help when things are whimsical that are also doing a very serious thing and, yes. the, and the building is whimsical it, it doesn't have the look and feel of something that is sustainable. There's, a, there's an enormously popular and persistent movement in architecture well, you'll often hear it referred to as touching the earth lightly and that is a very beautiful sentiment but the actuality of what that means really infuriates me um, because uh, construction is a very um, violent brutal act if any building does touch the earth lightly actually it will blow away so the only buildings that actually touch the earth lightly are not there anymore. They blow away. And so there's this enormous moving of earth and pouring of things to buildings. A lot of the structure in lower buildings anyway is to hold them down, not to keep them up. And so the, this building um, shies away from expressing its sustainable qualities in its aesthetics. It doesn't look like a sustainable building. It's its shape and colour and aesthetic and attitude uh, come from another set of ideas while at the same time being a highly sustainable building. I don't think it's necessary 
or even practical for a building to perform in a sustainable way to then have to look like it's performing in a certain way. I completely agree with you and I think it's very important that we resist the aestheticization or the creation of an aesthetic around sustainability. It might be too late. (laughs) For some too late, but that's architecture, right? It's a very diverse practice. It's a very diverse profession. Every architect is different. Everyone's portfolio and interests are different. And those who commission architecture understand that and they go to work with architects that suit them for for their needs and, and their style. I'm really interested in sustainability being rooted in a connection to place and sustainable buildings being beautiful. And for a long time, that was a very taboo word in our sector, in our industry. And I think there's many, many moments of this building, despite your resistance towards the water tanks, there's other bits that are incredibly beautiful, Um, particularly the glazing, which also serves a dual function. You've got these wonderful angled windows that... provide a view over the wetlands but it's for bird safety and bird protection the, yeah the windows do a number of different things so um many of them are angled towards the ground and um that has um, a number of effects one is that when you're standing inside the building looking out over the wetlands which you're above um the fact that the glazing is leaning away from you at quite a steep angle makes you feel like you're falling into the wetlands it produces a minor vertiginous effect and that's part of how people visiting the building end up um feeling that they're they're immersed in the wetlands because the 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 angle of the glazing drags you down into it Um, i really like moments like that because people pay a lot of money to walk on a skywalk to feel a little bit scared to be elevated to be part of this nature that they think they're separate from but th- this moment of the, the vertigo induced by the, the well, architecture... Well, the tilting of, of the glass is more effective at that for two reasons. One is when you when you walk on a glass floor, um, glass that's that thick gets scratched um, quite quickly and so that, um, and also has a lot of thickness to it. So it, it's not as transparent as glass normally is. And if glass that's flat on the ground will be reflective as well because the light's coming from above. But windows that are angled against away from you don't pick up the light in the in the same way. So they the, the those pieces of glass are far more transparent than um, glass that picks up light. Um, that's either vertical or completely flat. Does so you really feel as though the glass is not there. And from the outside, the reason that the glass is tilted down is a very beautiful thing, which is that um, one of the uh, most effective ways to um, prevent birds from flying into windows and the whole point that we're here is to be amongst birds and birds will, will, will um, we're, we're, this building is sited in the wetlands amongst the birds and birds are famous for flying into windows that they can't see and the reason they do that is that um, the windows usually reflect the sky so the bird will think it's looking at the sky and then suddenly it's dead um, and by tilting the uh, the glazing down towards the wetland, a bird flying towards it from the outside sees the ground reflected in the window, and then doesn't then flies away from from it before it reaches it. So it's a bird protection device. There's what there's, there are, there are two other little windows. What's what's two pieces of glazing that form a very sharp point that are vertical and don't tilt down. 
and this is a little moment that you can find, you squeeze your way into if you walk through the the area, the corridor that leads to the to the toilets, um, which is the green area inside the building, um, and to prevent birds from flying into that, because you can see straight through it, we put a pattern on that, and we um, borrowed um, a, a likeness of it, not exactly it, but borrowed a likeness of the uh, M.C. Escher famous drawing of the graphic bird. So the bird then becomes this um, uh, like uh, icon that gets used as a pattern on the glass. To, so that, then the, uh, only the humans know that they're birds, but the birds also see them and then don't fly into it. And they're an opaque decal or they're the ultraviolet um, inlays, UV, UV inlays? They're, I, I think they're an opaque decal, but I don't really know the answer to that question off the top of my head. As in humans can see it. Oh, humans, yeah. yes, sorry. Yeah, no, humans can see it, yeah. Sometimes you can get this inlay in skyscraper glass that only the birds can see. Right, well, then I've just have to make a note now because you've just taught me something I didn't know, which is it's nice not to be the fucking authority all the time. I, I'll add one more thing then about, about the wetland. You, you mentioned that it's on the Ramsar listing, but for our, for our listeners that aren't familiar with that term, the Ramsar Convention was signed in 1985 and it means that this is a wetland of international significance and we have an international obligation to protect it. And in many ways, in t- from a policy structure perspective, this sits up, sits up much, much higher than some of the other decisions um, that can be made for this place. And it's a really powerful thing and really amazing thing to have a, a Ramsar-listed wetland. Um, in your in your local area. So if you haven't been there for a while, you haven't been for a walk, um, do head down to go have a look. And the Friends of Edith Vale Wetlands are often manning the bird hide. Um, so you can have a chat and borrow their binoculars and look at all the 200 different species that are really amazing out there. I want to ask about the orange. Oh, yeah. And I think you may have started a trend in Edith Vale because I saw this exact orange just this week again and it... Seeing both buildings in one week, it hit me. We've got an Edith Vale Orange coming in on their life-saving club. Edith Vale Orange in answer to the famous Melbourne Yellow. And my walking partner who joined me for a stroll when we went down to the Edith Vale Wetlands Discovery Centre noted, oh, is that an orange version of the vault, the famous yellow peril nicknamed sculpture out the front of Acker. So... um, I'm champing at the bit to know. <laughs> Tell me about the orange. <laughs> well, um, it's like many of the things in our work. There are layers. There are layers to it. So yeah, um, the uh, the journey that referencing um, uh, Ron Robertson's swans, the vault has in many buildings in Melbourne is ever present in our mind. It somehow slips in, and the first architectural practice that started doing that. Um, Ashton Raggett, McDougall Architects, both Paul and I worked for when we were younger. So we kind of, we, 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 we caught that habit there and it sneaks in. It never quite as explicitly as it um, does in the work of ARM. But so that was in our mind and it's a sort of an inverted version of pieces of that. And that maybe explains some of the angularity of those, um, those orange pieces that form the middle and the undercroft of the building. But also, um, again, it's this idea of um, a uh, trying to reframe the understanding of what a sustainable aesthetic is. 
And there are so many brilliant and bright and vibrant colours. We don't have any of this particular animal that I'm about to mention in the Ramsar wetlands, which is the baboon's ass, is one of the most brightly colourful things that you can see. And those, when you, if you talk about um, quote unquote sustainable colours, you will normally end up with browns and greens and beiges. You won't find any of those on the baboon's ass. So why can't we draw from all the colours that are in this thing that we've called nature? And so we looked to the flora and fauna that is in the wetlands, not the baboon. And there are a number of birds. We have the um, we have the orange beak of the Caspian tern, uh, or also the orange neck of the um, Lewin's rail. And these oranges jump out. They're really, really bright. And we know that in um, in in birds, often colours are about um, how the birds engage in the uh, in the acts of um, of mating and procreation and so this bright orange is uh is part of our mechanism of reframing the aesthetic of sustainability but also it's the mating call of the building it's like the edithfeld seaford wetlands discovery center it's mating season and look you can see because it's showing off its orange and then the um the other thing that was really interesting about the orange is we were really interested in its recognisability. It's it, it's a colour that's used to warn people of things, and um, you can walk in anywhere if you've got an orange jacket on. And it's really interesting here that it's been picked up on other things, and so we wanted to uh, build on the on the on the myth of this colour and this little moment of spark that it played and somehow landed in this small part of this building and so for the official opening of the building everyone in our office all had their nails painted in that orange there are all these photos of us in the opening showing off our fingernails i shared that picture on from your instagram onto radio architecture story earlier earlier today just to uh, set the tone though i would be chasing after the orange question i think i think that's very important um and I think it's a really important conversation to talk about the need to resist this idea of polite colours, beiges and greys and boring tones that are sell well, that are good for the market, that blend in, that blend in with the sand dunes. The council loves a colour like that. Sometimes there's an offshoot of these conversations on such colour with neighbourhood character. But colour doesn't threaten your sustainability. In fact, it probably enhances it because it creates a connection to where you are and now more of this orange is springing up around Edith Fell and I'll keep an eye out, see if we can document the emergence of orange across the Longer Beach suburbs. If I see more, I might even start a little highlights nugget on, on the Instagram reel. I mean, aesthetics are very um, didactic and, well... They, 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 tell they, po- they polarise people. People will feel strongly about something one way or another. And so one way to maybe try and approach a broader um, agreement is to make things less noticeable. And I think that's some of where the, this palette of muted colours as being perceived as more acceptable or more. It's just um, less people will, 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 um, will notice it, so it's less likely that someone will... 
um, make a comment about its existence one way or another. But I think rather than getting into an argument about aesthetics, because once something becomes polarised, the argument simply gets stronger and stronger, I think a, a nicer way into that conversation is through is through the colour of the birds. Like if we told the birds that the orange of their beaks or the backs of their necks or their breasts um, – the, there's no orange on the breasts in the birds in this wetland, but that's a, obviously a famous place for birds to have really bright colours. Um, if we told them that their colours were not appropriate, they'd be horrified. They would. Well, yeah, quite. What's the bird? What's a bird to do? <laughs> that's a <laughs> go good and go and get yeah, go and get your feathers dyed. Well, that's not going to happen. Like get your you could go and get your feathers all dyed to beige, but then like where like what use is that during mating season? Exactly, exactly right. I wanted to ask one more question about the challenge of construction on the wetland. We, we mentioned tonight that it is a very dynamic space. It is in the water. It's not just on that edge of the green-blue line in the master plan. And I think that's one of the most exciting successes, actually, in the siting of the project is that it's very much in it and amongst it. Um, what was it like building on an active, living, listed wetland? It's quite challenging. Like a lot of the tests for whether um, uh, concrete is ready to be certified as to be ready to build on the next stage on it is, you know, has it been exposed to dry air for a long enough time? And, you know, we're, we're building underwater all the time. So the types of construction that the engineers had to specify and resort to is the type of types of construction techniques that you might find in dam building or bridge building to get the footing set up and that um seems like an extreme thing but it's it's just a, it's a it's a technique for working with for working with uh water and, and structure um it was that that in itself was not um not a particularly challenging um thing because of those techniques are actually available it's, it was really more the challenging thing was that the access uh, and that's not because the access was difficult, but just that the the, um, the access was so damaging to, like the 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 site under construction, and what's there now that there, or oh, even immediately after construction had finished, um, it's almost unrecognisable. When um, Paul Carter wrote his review, um, which I mentioned earlier, he was visiting the building shortly after it had been completed, and he writes about it as this. Um, in, in he means this in a positive light that the, the expression of the building is like really confronting to be confronted with this representation of the looking um, looking device. It was far more acute then because the all the landscape that's immediately around the building is designed in to be there to grow up ar- around it, and it really wasn't there. It really did look look very very bald, and that was from the process of construction. Like a bit of a plucked chicken on its little legs. That's a, a very, very apt metaphor. Yeah, like a, a lot of Slavic fairy tales have a <laughs> have a witch's hut on chicken feet. The other part of that also is the um, is the glass reinforced concrete panels. But you might have a whole separate question. I mean, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm into the absolutely. I'm super interested in them and. The GRC, it's a different formulation in the concrete mix that makes it helps it be lighter. Is that right in the gl- well, fiberglass um, reinforcement? As listeners will probably know, um, concrete um, in its uh, with 
works very well in compression and not very well in tension. And so all concrete construction has reinforcement in it. And um, over over uh, over the decades or centuries, even lots of different things have been used to, to give concrete its tensile reinforcement. The most f- um, commonly used um, substance uh, now is steel, obviously, um, but horsehair was once used, and glass reinforced concrete is uh, is concrete that has its tensile reinforcement from um, fiberglass, and so it's still concrete, but the thing that keeps it um, from from pulling apart is uh, very fine glass fibers which means you can get very thin and very lightweight concrete and you can have a much a finer amount of control over the, the texture and the corner of the details and the finish on the concrete and so the the facades of this building some of them are windows obviously um but there's a there are um there are panels made of uh we'll call it grc so i don't have to say the whole phrase glass reinforced concrete over and over again there are grc panels which is simply a slightly unusual type of precast concrete panel they are precast concrete panels which are mounted onto the building and form the part of the part of the seal of the building um and um anyone who's seen the building will know that it has a very very distinctive and deeply textured um pattern on that building it's really deep i was actually shocked by how deep it was until i got up close and that that there was a there was a whole um, that was one of the most um challenging things about the about the project it was very important to us that that had depth because the building is quite boxy and we wanted to use the texture of the panels to give it uh its porosity if you like so it's suburban and very openly building like in its form to help add layers to it a little and we bit. wanted it to have layers and complexity in the surface of the building and so we wrote into the tender documents that the um the panels which had not been designed at the tender stage but had been allowed for would have a certain depth and there are lots of different ways of making um making uh, moulds for uh, GRC panels. The most expensive and uh, way and the, w- and the way that gives you the most control is to make silicon rubber moulds. But the budgets that we um, had access to didn't allow for that. So these are actually made from timber moulds. And timber moulds are, um, they are far more susceptible to... Um, to complexities of breakage um, when you pull the mold away from the from the um, from the concrete, and because of that, um, you can't make them very deep, and also um, you have to have this this thing called a release angle. So it means you can't have vertical lines in the depth. You can have vertical lines in depth if you've got a silicon mold because you can peel the mold away from the concrete after the concrete set. But with the timber mold, the separation is completely linear because both the timber and the concrete are pretty much inflexible. So to do this, we um, we utilised our officers on very, very um, precise control that we're able to have over geometry to to lock in a very specific release angle, which was as steep as we could go while still knowing that the timber would actually release. And so um, there's a depth there that's um, otherwise very difficult to um, uh, t- to achieve in that in that complexity. Um, it was uh, the release angle was so steep in this instance that the the contractor would not 
produce the shop drawings. They refused to guarantee that the moulds would actually release. And so we had to, well, we didn't have to, we wanted to. We put our hands on our hearts and said, we'll guarantee that. And which is an enormous, uh, it's an enormous leap of, of, of confidence in our own ability to control a very, very precise geometry because we don't, we don't have experience actually making GOC panels. We just understand the principle of it is tied to a certain angle and if we could control that angle with precision and not very much room for error, then we were happy to guarantee that the panels wouldn't break and the, they, they, they didn't, we didn't break a single panel when we were releasing... Um, the uh, from the panels from their molds. The other really interesting thing about the panels is, even looking closely at the facade of the building and studying it, the the the, the pattern that goes around the building, the texture of it um, seems to be continuously varied. It's it looks completely organic, but it is in fact highly repetitive. There are only three molds across the whole building. I think there was something from memory. I think there are 32 panels across the whole building, three moulds only, and they repeat. And the pattern is designed in such a way so as to to um, to hide the fact that the repetition is taking place. If you look at it really carefully, you can see the repeating happen, but you really have to work to find it. Even, I did study it. I had to did study Did you find it? it? Did you yeah. find the repetition? Yeah. Even, like when I go back to it, I still have to look and go, oh, oh, oh there it is. But it's really seamless. It's it's incredibly effective. And how many goes did you get out of the timber mold, or was it a bit more sacrificial? Oh no, we got no, we got no. It's not sacrificial. We got we got. Um, I mean, there was a limit because it, it does degrade. But um, the, the we we didn't have to sacrifice any molds in the making of the building. Wonderful. Yeah. And what's the image? What's what's informed the the, the image is. Um, <coughs> You're not giving away too many secrets. No, no, there, there isn't really a secret to give away. It's not a, it's not a highly, it's not a representational image. I've heard people describe it as looking like elephant skin, and if that's how it seems, then that's how it is. But that's not that was not the intent. Intent was to have porosity and for it, for the building to cast shadows on itself, for the building to have a, a kind of a mystery to its texture. Um. Uh, the texture that um, resides on its surface, and the the process of making it was almost uh, well, it wasn't all. It was a very intuitive one. We had this working method in the office, which um, came about through years of working together, and also years of um, teaching with each other, and also with our students. And someone who had been one of our students, who later became an architect, worked for us, Jessica in. Um, put an enormous amount of time into um, working with us on those panels. And there was this long period in the office where she would um, look at an image and turn it into a height map and then um, uh, create a series of agents which would then move around the height map and form relationships to each other. And then this would then start to make this uh, pattern. We're kind of like inventing a type of a new type of ocean movement or something. It does now, look very aquatic to me. Just for the listeners, Jan's describing a three D modeling method. This is something our software can allow us to do. Yeah, and but it's um, it's a three D modeling method, which is very uh, it's very loose. It's not like you push a thing there and that happens. Like you're kind of it's like trying to make something with 
a thick soup, if you like. The control is at like third, fourth, fifth hand. And so the process in the office was very beautiful. Um, Jessica would um, work uh, and invest her own intellectual ideas and energies and and uh, and, um, and methods into getting it to a certain state. And they would all sit around and look at it. And because we'd all been working together for so long, there was very little conversation. We'd sort of look at it and, and we'd go, hmm. And then just know that meant it, it maybe it needed to be a bit more like something else. And she would then play around with, with some more and stir the soup a bit. Yeah, it was a lot of it was a lot of um, it was designed through playing. It was using the the ideas that we had that we were interested in and the techniques that we knew, but using them in a way that came out through our bodies and the tools of the computer, almost like muscle memory. So it didn't make sense to go, oh, it needs to be bigger or smaller or longer. It was it was very much a discussion of shrugging and harumphing and hmm and hmm and hmm. That went on for weeks. And then after this like strange muted, uh, non-verbal yet so yet also of um, weighted with intellectual content, but that was not coming out in an intellectual way. It was coming out through our bodies, not through our language. Then we then ended up with a pattern that we were all very, very happy with. It was like, hmm. And you knew, you knew mm. in that moment that was mm. that was the one. Mm. Very, um, very joyous process. It sounds as well. The creative process can be difficult and stressful and. Uh, arduous, but it, it sounds like there was a lot of joy in there for yourself and your team. I wanted to ask about another one of your creative projects about lost tablets. Oh yeah, that comes across as being very joyous, very whimsical, very serious as well, but out of child's enjoyed materials out of Lego. Say say some more about the lost tablets project. I've spoken about there's a number of times when I know that people are not looking at them and it's an interesting thing to do because a lot of the the tension of them is a visual thing they are very serious objects they um, are objects that are made using the language of monuments they use columns and arches and capitals and bases to create a sense that they have a have an importance to them. They have they have authority and mass and how big is each sculpture? Yet they're quite small. They're only about A four in size. If you imagine an A four piece of paper standing up on its end, they are about that big. They're tall, A four tall, and quite thin. Yet they have this um, they, they they look like they are bigger than they are because of the language of geometry that they have. And so th- this earnestness to them uh, is then um, tickled by how big they actually are. But even that doesn't really create the tension of them. The tension of them comes when you realise that they're all made from second-hand Lego. They're made from a children's toy, which is not modif- – the objects, the blocks that they're made from are all um, – they're all uh, – Proprietary pieces. All proprietary pieces. They're all second-hand. They haven't been modified anyway, yet they're put together in a way that um, does not look like they've been made – out of Lego. Now, there are so many millions of things that are made out of Lego. If you think of something, someone's made one out of Lego. But Definitely. these objects have a different quality because 
because of their small size and the relationship between the size of a Lego block and the size of them, they're low resolution. And so they have this kind of muscular tension rather than being this expression of anything that can be expressed with Lego. They look muscular and dense. They're very like lo-fi. They're lo-fi. But solid little things. You look at these solid little sculptures about the size of an A4 piece, but there's like a story in them. You know what? I've only ever seen one in in image, I must confess. I've, I've never seen one in person. And... I always look at them and I think, oh, that's a story, that's a cave, that's a that's a column, that's a labyrinth. And you give them these names that also suggest that there's a story associated to it. What are some of your favourite names well, the, or some of your favourite tablets? The, 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 the familiarity that you're experiencing um, comes from an idea that I'm, I'm very, um, very interested in. It's not my idea, but it's a very interesting idea. And the idea is that... If you imagine for a moment a whole other discipline, if you imagine the field of music, even though I sing badly, I'm very happy to sing in the shower. And in that moment, I'm very happy to imagine for a moment that I have most wonderful musical abilities. I might not tell anyone and I might never actually subject anyone to have to actually listen to that. But everyone has this... um, What if moment. Well, even if you you don't have the what if moment... um, most people aren't as delusional as I am, hopefully, but everyone has a, a relationship to music. You can feel um, the joy of music without having any um, any any knowledge of how to make it um, or how to play it. And so there is uh, there is an innate relationship that I think all people have to music. Um, I've got a friend who is um, deaf, completely deaf, and. Um, she loves going dancing because the music, which is wavelength, still finds its way to her just through other, other her other senses. Um, and then if you think about architecture, there are very few people alive in the world today, and this has been true for quite a long time now, who were not born in a building. So from the moment you are born, you're in a room. And you start to develop an understanding of um, your relationship to the environment that you suddenly find yourself in as a this moment where you realise that you're breathing oxygen and not liquid anymore. You're in a room, and those the room makes an impression on you. And every single room and space and building and city that you are um, ever in forms your understanding of architecture so that means that all people have a relationship and an understanding of architecture some people go on to study it and develop language around it but because the the language and the ideas of architecture are very um expressed almost um exclusively through language and intellect it's difficult for people to i think um realize the memory they have in their body of architecture but it's there for everybody, and these objects are doing that. The toyness of them makes them approachable, and so um, it's not, it's not saying to you, you must come and look at this piece of architecture. Which, if you're not comfortable with the whole idea of the intellectual concepts of architecture, you you might go, well, I don't want to look at that. And it, they just speak to you because everyone has that knowledge somewhere in them. Absolutely, everyone has spatial intelligence. 
Lived down the, the no, and that's the title of a book that was written by my dad in which he describes that idea and um, I think it's safe to say it's his idea. <laughs> that's a book by Leon Van Skyke, by the way, if you want to follow up on that. Well, the, the, the book summarising the exhibition, Architecture Without Architects. But I think that's very important and one of the parallel motivations for this radio show is that everyone has... A, innate understanding and knowing within them and sometimes the profession hasn't been terribly inclusive of sharing these ideas but because we are connected to the people who use our buildings to the people who commission our buildings architects in the profession can't exist in a in a silo i like how your tablets give people a way into that a little bit in a in a safer way in a more comfortable toy-like, play-like way. I mean, it could be, it's possible to be cynical about how um, architects speak in, architects speak, they complicate things. But I think anyone who invests time um, working on something will develop a shorthand for uh, talking about it. And so that's uh, like any group of people develop a language that is specific to their own interests. Yeah, that's and, true. And um, but I, I, it's not that... I don't think it's a deliberate act of being opaque. It just it just happens through specialization, and it's quite easy to undo as well. Like those those words all mean something. You just have to spend a minute on trying to put them in non-architectural language, and it still makes sense. Exactly. When you know them well enough, I I find that all the guests on the show are quite able to do that as well. You're interested in how people use their words and how people write as well, and one of the series you've curated is and concepts just want to quickly before we wrap up touch on that one it's a semi-regular talk presentation series with artists talking about their work is that right so the the um it began as uh, an, an interest in um the type of thinking that happens when people are writing something I think I had, as a younger person, a very silly idea in my head that if you wrote something the way that you did it was you um, you wrote it in your mind and when it was finished you sat down and typed it up. And I thought that for a very long time and it was a, it was a barrier to me ever writing something and then I got to a point in my life where I really had to write something that was, um, well, comparative to the things I've written before. It was quite long and I had to... I had to face this challenge and um, I put it off for a very long time because I couldn't finish the 30,000 word piece in my head. It's hard to hold 30,000 pieces of words in your head. And so then I just had to start writing. And then suddenly I realised that the act of writing is the act of thinking. This phrase that people often use where they say they're, they're, um, <clears throat> they're thinking out loud, like writing is thinking out loud. And as you write... Um, the thing that you think you're writing will change through the process of writing it. And that what for me was a, quite a large epiphany and is probably a, a truism for almost anyone who's ever written anything, I suddenly got interested in the um, the processes that people went through, what they discovered when, when they were trying to do something. I don't know if you're allowed to have favourites, but do you have a favourite talk that's I, come up over uh, the years? I've got. I made some notes about that actually. I'm where I just need to get them quickly. Sorry to refer, to refer to them, um, but I, that's because it's a very difficult question. I showed some um, 
as friends around um, my art collection at home the other day, and a question I always get asked is, "Which is your favourite artwork?" And the question, the answer to that is a very, it's a very easy one to rebuff that because you simply say, "Ah, oh, you're asking me to choose between my children. How could you do such a thing?" <laughs> and then the person said, "All right, well, if there was a fire, which one would you take with me?" It's like, "Oh, no, you, know, you can't use the children one as a defence for that." So then I had to think about it, and so I did. I did uh, anticipate this question, and so. I thought about some of them. I thought some of them. Um, one of the ones was um, a, a talk about um, about a personal, a very emotional personal story. It was being told by a Wemba Wemba um, Gudajmara presenter, and she was telling um, the very very traumatic story of um, her her family and the trauma of of settlement in Australia, and. It was a very memorable uh, presentation for me because in question time, um, in, in the format of these talks, I often start the questions going, I thought I would do a very clever thing and um, try and relate to her story by sharing some of my story, which was an, incre- an incredibly foolish thing to do. And um, it, it, there was this very dramatic moment where I was told to, uh, to sit down and shut the fuck up. And this was being told to the presenter of the talk. And so I did. I, I realised that actually that, that that was one of the moments where I realised that one of the most powerful things that I could do as a, as a convener or as a person of privilege is to just get out of the fucking way. And bear witness. And it was really, it was really refreshing to be, be told that to my face. And so I did. I, I sat down and shut up. And things got better after I stopped talking. Well, we learn lessons in all sorts of different ways. Some of the other ones that were really interesting were um, Jesse Boulevant's talk really stuck in my head and in that talk they spoke about the power of power of words and in um, that talk um, Jesse spoke about uh, a radio show in which the presenters um, had a competition that they it was a sponsor competition and it was called um, and I'm, I'm really just paraphrasing from um, Jesse's talk now. It was called uh, "Hold Your Wee for a Wee," and the, remember those wee things, like a computer um, uh, sports. The competitors to PlayStation. Com- that's right. And so, in this um, in this radio show, if you could hold your, if you could not go to the toilet for uh, the longest, then you won. One. And and someone playing this game died. Oh my goodness! Because they they caused a kind of toxic shock in their system by holding on to their the the desire to go to the bathroom just Good. to win this toy, and so there was this, a really interesting story about the power. Like that was just a stupid word game, and it killed someone, okay. and and so that that the, the the words have like real real meaning in 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 the world. The sticks and stones can break my bones but words can never hurt me is just not true yeah that's absolutely right well Jan thank you so much for your words tonight and for your time for joining us on this program for listeners we're already over a little bit but right before the closing credits earlier this week we took some field recordings around this building around the Edithfell Discovery Centre and across the wetlands so we'll just play some of that for you now
Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hi, I'm Dr. Floyd Gomes, uh, aka Atticus Health with Dr. Floyd, you might recall, and it's great to be here at Radio Karam.